following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Title of the book, Where Does Genesis Come From and What Does It Mean in terms of its title, Genesis? Well, interestingly, the word Genesis comes from the title of the Greek, uh, the title of the book in the Greek Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the title of the first book in the Septuagint is the Greek word Genesis. Our English word is just a transliteration of the Greek, and that word means origins. Somebody says, well, what's the title of the Hebrew Genesis? Well, very similarly, it's the phrase Bereshit, and that phrase means in the beginning. Oftentimes, I think this was pointed out in another survey, uh, Old Testament books are titled by the first word or phrase in that book. And in this case, it's very appropriate. In the beginnings, and thus, we can say that Genesis is going to be a book about origins, a book about beginnings, a very obviously appropriate introduction to the Bible as a whole. What about its form and structure? What kind of literature is Genesis, and how is it structured? Well, in terms of its form, its genre, the first thing we want to underscore is the fact that Genesis refers to people and events that the rest of Scripture treat as historical. So whatever we say about the genre of Genesis, it is history. Okay, you see this in the fact that, for example, First Chronicles the first nine chapters of which give us genealogies of historical people and events, Um, the very beginning of that list of genealogies takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. And it treats those individuals just as historical as men like David and Solomon. And thus, it's a book of history. And you see this in those other passages of Scripture as well. Moreover, Genesis employs the Hebrew vav. My Hebrew students know what vav is, right? Vav is a, uh, a conjunction translated and or but. But they haven't learned this part yet. Uh, when it's vocalized in a certain way, it's called the vav consecutive, and it's used in prose narrative. It's a very common feature of prose narrative, Um, He and she did this, and they said this, and they went here, and so on and so forth, and that's how they would tell history in Hebrew. And it turns out this Vav consecutive is used throughout the book of Genesis, including chapter 1. Sometimes you hear people say things like, well, Genesis chapter 1's poetry. Well, it's written in prose narrative, okay? Now, it's more than just prose narrative as we're going to see, but it is Nonetheless, prose narrative. It also employs genealogies throughout the entire book, and it prefaces the genealogies with the phrase, these are the histories of. Ele toledot. All right? So that is another clue that we're talking about historical narrative. Notice how the whole book is woven together with these toledotes. You have the introduction of the book, creation of heaven and earth, chapter 1 through 2, 3. Then you have the histories of creation. 
the Toledot of heaven and earth. Chapter 2, verse 4 through 426. Then you have the histories of Adam. Uh, 5, 1 through 6, 8. The histories of Noah. The histories of Noah's sons. The histories of Shem, of Terah, of Ishmael, of Isaac, of Esau, and of Jacob. All right? So you can't just treat the latter chapters about the patriarchs as historical and the earlier chapters as if they were sort of legend or fiction because the author of Genesis treats the entire history as real history, okay? Historical, and he ties it all together with these Toledotes. All right, so although Genesis is historical narrative, it does contain some snippets of poetry throughout. So you got God's creation of man as his image, and you have in verse 27 of chapter 1, a little poem. God created man in his image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. That's poetical. So even though we're writing history here, that doesn't mean that the author's not creative, uh, that the author's not artful in the way he writes his history. So he adds these little poems throughout. You've got Adam's love poem about his wife Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, okay? Um, God's curse on the serpent. Isn't that interesting? When God pronounces that doom oracle on Satan, he does it in the form of poetry. And then you have uh, Lamech's vengeful boast, the institution of capital punishment, Noah's curse on Canaan, Melchizedek's blessing on Abraham, and many other little sections or passages that are written in poetical form. So it is historical narrative as a whole. Nevertheless, it's written in a very artful way, including some snippets of poetry. Moreover, although most of Genesis is written in prose, that is non-poetry, much of Genesis would be characterized as stylized prose. Some of it very stylized very artful, you might say. For example, take the creation week. Okay, it's not a poem. It is not a poem, but one scholar calls it a prome. He's trying to say it's prose, but it's also kind of like a poem, right? And there's a sense in which he's right about that. Notice how it's artfully structured. Notice the symmetry here. So in verse 2, you have this statement that the earth was tohu vabohu, meaning it is unformed and it is unfilled, and that underscores a need. And God's going to address that need in the rest of the chapter. And so when you've got something unformed, what do you got to do with it? Form it. When you have something unfilled, what do you got to do with it? Fill it. That's what God's going to do. So in days one through three, he focuses on forming. And he forms these different realms. Day one, light and darkness. Day two, sky and seas. Day three, land and vegetation. And then in days four through six, he's going to focus on filling those realms with rulers. And you've got the heavenly luminaries, and they're going to rule over the light and darkness. You've got the birds and the fish, and their domain is going to be the sky and the seas. 
And then you got the animals and the humans, and their domain's going to be the land and the vegetation. And of course, as we know, humans are the apex of creation, and they're going to rule over all. And then day seven caps the creation week where God takes his throne, which is also known to us as the Sabbath. All right, so why does the author do that? Well, he's not writing dry history. It is history. It is historical narrative, but he's writing it in a very artful, creative way. And I think from a theological standpoint, the author's trying to underscore the fact that God himself is a creative architect, that he's building a beautiful world with symmetry and structure, and thus this is reflected even in the way in which we have this historical account. Consider also, just very quickly, uh, a narrative like the Tower of Babel narrative. Is that a historical story? Did it really happen? The answer is yes. But again, it's not told in some sort of dry, bland, newspaper-like fashion. Instead, notice how the author treats it. He uses what's called a chiasm. It's a literary structure that has a center. And notice how... The first part of the text is parallel with the last part, verse 1 and verse 9. So in verse 1, we have a description of the earth having one language. In verse 9, though, we have sort of the contrast. The whole earth now has many languages. So those two are parallel, A, A prime. Then you have verse 2, the people are gathered in Shinar. Whereas in verse 8, the people are scattered from Shinar. In verses 3 through 4, the people resolve. Come, let us build this city. Come, let us build this tower. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. And what's that parallel with? Well, the section down below, verses 6 through 7, Yahweh resolves. Come, let us go down and investigate. Come, let us confound their languages. And then the very center of the passage, and this is sort of, you might say, the heart or the core of this story, is Yahweh actually descending, or you could even say condescending, because he has to stoop, he has to go down from his high and lofty place in order to investigate and to judge the people. By the way, you may recall uh, what was this, some time ago, year or two ago, I preached on uh, Jacob's dream of the, not the ladder, but the stairway from heaven being the answer to Babel. And I made the argument that in his dream, some translations translated that Yahweh was standing above the ziggurat, above the stairway. But I said, that's not the best way to understand it. A better translation is that Yahweh came down and was standing next to Jacob, and in that sense, Yahweh was condescending to show grace to Jacob. And so there's two occasions where Yahweh condescends in the Bible. He condescends to save, but in this case here, he condescends to judge. All right? And so that's the heart of the passage. God's answer to humanity's rebellion is to thwart their plans. All right, that's the genre. 
It's historical narrative, but in many cases, highly stylized, with some poetry scattered about. It's structure. All right, well, this is very common if you pick up uh, surveys or uh, commentaries, you'll find that scholars generally divide the book up into two parts, chapters 1 through 11, chapters 12 through 50. And somebody says, why do they divide it up that way? Well, to begin with, when you look at chapters 1 through 11, you have this broad focus on humanity as a whole, the human race. Whereas when you come to chapters 12 through 50, all of a sudden that broad focus on humanity narrows itself down to just the patriarchs, the ancestors of the nation of Israel. So that obviously signals a change in structure. The other thing that scholars notice is that in chapters 1 through 11, you have um, a rapid pace in the telling of the story. You have thousands of years of history transpiring. And you just got 11 chapters. Whereas in the larger section of the book, chapters 12 through 50, you have a slower pace that covers just about 300 years. And so for that reason, scholars will structure the book this way. First, primeval history, 1 through 11, where you have creation of heaven and earth, 1 and 2, fall of humanity, chapter 3, the spread of sin before and after the fall in 4 through 11. Then you have a sort of transitional text, uh, verses 1 through 3 of Genesis 12, where God says to Abram, God calls Abram out of this mass of humanity that had built the Tower of Babel, and he says, go to the land of Canaan, and he promises him this, I'm going to make you a great nation, and he says, I'm going to bless you and make your name great, and those who bless you, I'll bless, those who curse you, I'll bless, and in you, or through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's sort of an echo of the earlier proto-evangel in chapter 3. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But that forms the hinge, the transition between primeval and patriarchal history. And so then patriarchal history picks up in chapter 12. We got the story of Abraham, 12 through 25, story of Isaac and Jacob, 26 through 36, story of the sons of Jacob in 37 through 50. All right? So this is how the book is structured. Most scholars would pretty much agree with this outline. Who authored Genesis? When did they write it? And to whom was it addressed? Okay? Well, let's talk about the author. It turns out that nowhere in Genesis is the author named. It doesn't start off in verse 1 saying, you know, I, Moses, prophet of the Old Testament, called by Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, it does that in the New Testament epistles, right? But it doesn't do that in the book of Genesis. Nevertheless, there is indirect evidence that Moses is its author. For example, uh, several biblical writers ascribe the law, which is really the Torah. By the way, the English word law is not the best translation for the Hebrew word Torah because law in our minds conjures up the idea of what? Legal stipulations, okay? Now, the Torah contains legal stipulations, but a lot of it is just historical narrative. It's stories and 
so on and so forth. So Torah means something broader, kind of like instruction. All right? In any case, this Torah, also known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, is ascribed by men like Joshua or Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, etc., etc., by these various biblical writers, it's ascribed to Moses. Moses is the author of the Torah. And since Genesis is the first book of the Torah, what's that imply? That Moses authored Genesis. In fact, Jesus himself is portrayed by the gospel writers as affirming Mosaic authorship. And you see all of those passages. Remember, Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Okay? So he believed that Moses was the author of the Torah. It turns out as well that the author of the Torah appears to be familiar with details about the land of Egypt, making it likely he lived there. That certainly makes Moses a candidate, right? The author of the Torah was well-educated. He was literate. He could write. And that fits the description of Moses who grew up in Pharaoh's house and was educated in Egypt. He would have been a, you know, the equivalent of a Harvard graduate, although these days we don't really always think of Harvard graduates as being terribly educated. No offense if you graduated from Harvard, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, at least by those standards, Egypt was a place where if you wanted to go to college, that was a great place to go, okay? And uh, he would have been familiar with all of the great literature of that day. Um, And then moreover, the author of the Torah is familiar with the heritage and history of Israel's ancestors, another qualification that Moses would have fulfilled. Now, people raise objections to Mosaic authorship. For example, they'll say things like, well, much of the history in Genesis predates Moses by hundreds, even thousands of years. How could Moses have access to that information? That's a good question. Well, in the ancient Near East, a big uh, way in which uh, history and tradition was passed down would have been through oral tradition, stories, okay? People sat around the fire, and uh, grandfathers taught their children and their grandchildren um, history and tradition, and that was, that was passed on, and that was uh, drilled into Uh, subsequent generations that they had to continue to pass this information along. That was a very big deal. In fact, by the way, one of the reasons why they did use a lot of poetry is that poetry is easier to memorize. One of the reasons they did use highly stylized prose is it made it easier to memorize and to pass these things along. And so, as you know, if you know anything about Jewish history, uh, young Jewish Uh, children had to memorize a lot of their tradition. They had to pass it along. There's also written tradition. It's become common in modern times to assume, because of the theory of evolution, that people in Bible days didn't know how to write or read. Well, that's been debunked because archaeology has uncovered Uh, writings that date all the way back to the 4th millennium B.C. That would be the 3000s B.C. Uh, Writing was prevalent, okay? And in fact, interestingly, 
You remember we talked about the Toledotes. These are the histories of. It turns out that one of those Toledotes in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, the histories of Adam, actually includes the word safer. One of my students. What's that mean? Safer. Book, or more properly, scroll, because they didn't have codex back then, but they had scrolls, okay? So uh, these are... This is the, actually, it's, this is the scroll of the histories of Adam, Genesis 5, okay? So it's very possible that Moses is alluding to the fact that that history was written down and maybe passed along to subsequent generations through Noah and his sons and that Moses had access to that written history. And then, of course, there's direct revelation. Obviously, nobody's standing around to watch God put the moon and the stars in their place and, and, and write it down and describe it. So some of what's in Genesis, God would have had to reveal directly to Moses through divine inspiration. So that's how I'd answer that objection. Another objection is there are a few statements in Genesis and elsewhere in the Torah that seem to point to a later author. Uh, the most well-known statement is uh, at the end of Deuteronomy where we have the description of Moses' death and burial, right? Who wrote that? Uh, some have in church history have actually said that maybe God gave Moses a prophetic revelation of his death and burial and Moses just wrote it down. That's possible. But many, most scholars, evangelical scholars, believe that maybe somebody like Joshua added that to the book of Deuteronomy, and in the same way, there could have been some editorial updates. So, for example, um, in 11.28, we have this reference to Ur of the Chaldeans, Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Well, it was known as Ur of the Chaldeans later in history. In Abraham's day, it was technically Ur of the Amorites, same thing in chapter 14, verse 14, you have this reference to the city of Dan. Well, it wasn't known as the city of Dan, not in Abraham's day, not even in Moses' day. It wasn't until later, the conquest, when the city of Laish was renamed as the city of Dan. So you have an editorial update. By way of illustration, suppose I ask you to Google, when you get home, the uh, date of the founding of New York City, what would that date be? 16? Anybody got it? Oh, we got some New Yorkers in here. Come on. 1624. Okay? And you'd read it and write in the article. Look it up. Wikipedia, whatever. New York City founded in 1624. Guess what? Err. It wasn't called New York City in 1624. It was called New Amsterdam. So why did they say New York City's founded in 1624? Well, because they're writing to you and I. We don't know about New Amsterdam. We, didn't, we don't call it that anymore. And so they just update that. And so that's probably what happens sometimes is that later prophets, later scribes, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are updating parts of the Old Testament for their contemporary readers. All right? And so therefore, most evangelical scholars argue for what's called essential mosaic authorship while allowing for some limited editorial updates. They're not saying that the whole thing was updated. 
okay? Just little parts by, for, by way of clarification. What about the date? When did he write it? Sometime, obviously, between Israel's time at Sinai, 1446, and Moses' death near the plains of Moab, just prior to Israel entering into the land of Canaan. There is, by the way, a passing statement at the end of Genesis that suggests that Moses may have completed the book on the plains of Moab just before he died, as he's just looking over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. All right, look at this statement, kind of interesting here. That we read that when the inhabitants of the land, that is the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad. And by the way, what that's referring to is that, remember, they brought the bones of Jacob to bury them in Canaan, Joseph and the Egyptians. And the Egyptians came with Joseph, and they, back then, you know, they had professional mourners that would accompany you to the funeral, and they'd throw dust in the air and pull out their hair and cry and all of that. And so the Canaanites saw that, and they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians, and therefore the place was called Avel Mitzrayim. Avel means like funeral, and uh, one of my students, Mitzrayim. Okay, Becky. Egypt, or Egyptians, okay? So, Basically here, this is the the funeral of Egypt or the mourning of the Egyptians. And notice this phrase, it is beyond the Jordan. And the standpoint of whoever wrote that, they had to be just east of the river looking over it into the land of Canaan west. Okay? So interesting Statement there. Maybe he just was finishing up the book of Genesis, chapter 50, as he was looking over into the land of Canaan. Who are the recipients? Well, the immediate recipients were primarily the second generation of Israelites who were preparing to enter Canaan, with whom God had just renewed the covenant. And then the more distant recipients include all of God's people through the ages. So when you and I read the book of Genesis, we can be assured that these things were written for our example, for our instruction. First Peter tells us that the prophets were not just speaking to their own generation, but that they were writing for us, and that would include Moses, okay? So what is the aim and argument? What is the main goal of Genesis, and how does the book fulfill that goal. This is where it really gets interesting and fun. Well, in keeping with the book's title, Beginnings or Origins, I would argue that the aim of Genesis is to provide the people of God with, one, a foundation for life's big questions, and two, a foundation for the gospel storyline. So let's kind of tease each of those out. First of all, When you and I read Genesis, we learn about the origin of the nation of Israel, the human race, the entire universe, the origins of human culture, language, marriage, vocation, religion. We learn about the temporal beginnings of sin, divine judgment, and the gospel itself. Now, if you guys watched the series back in the 70s, I think it was, entitled Roots, remember that? Okay, why did Alex... Haley, did I get the author's name right? Why did he write that? Well, 
Because knowing the origin of a thing or an event or a person can help us better understand that thing, event, or person. And so in providing God's people with an account of origins, Genesis is providing them with answers to life's biggest questions. Like, for example, what is ultimate reality? Well, we could answer that in various ways. We can say the physical universe. Nothing more, nothing less. That's ultimate reality. That's what Stephen Hawking wants us to believe. We could say that there's some sort of spiritual force out there. Okay, the force be with you. And uh, it's an energy. It animates the physical universe, but it's impersonal. Or we might say that there is a supreme being who created all things and who governs all things. Which of these does Genesis offer as an answer to the question? That's pretty easy, isn't it? In the beginning, what? God, okay? Not just a big bang, not just the force be with you, long, long ago in a galaxy far away, no. No, it is God created the heavens and the earth. So Genesis gives people an answer to that question. How can we know what is real? Well, there are various answers to that question offered today. Some people say, well, human senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, these are the ultimate basis for our knowledge. Other people say, no, it's human reason. That's the ultimate basis for our knowledge. And still others say, no, human intuition, our feelings would be the ultimate basis for our knowledge. Now, the Bible doesn't disparage any of those. They all play a part, but they are not ultimate. What is ultimate, according to the book of Genesis, is divine revelation. God speaking. God making himself known. That is the ultimate basis for our knowledge. And then, how can we, how can we know right from wrong? Okay, um, well, Genesis addresses that question too, doesn't it? Um, uh, there's this character called the serpent, and he suggests that the, serp- that the humans decide, that there really are no moral absolutes, that moral standards should be based on personal happiness or preference or even pragmatism. Well, Genesis, does, Genesis presents that, but it doesn't endorse that. Instead, Genesis says, no, 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 God decides. There are moral absolutes. Moral standards are revealed in nature, the human conscience, and through divine revelation. And the ultimate goal of these moral standards is God's glory and man's eternal happiness. Not just temporal happiness, but eternal happiness. All right? Now, dear friends, in light of this, the fact that Genesis provides these answers to life's biggest questions, um, we have something to offer to the world with the book of Genesis. They're looking for answers about human gender and sexuality, solutions for racial tensions, grappling with immigration, terrorism. And although most people don't want to talk about it, they're dealing with this issue of a bad conscience. Why do they have a bad conscience? Well, we got the answer to those questions. Okay? To borrow the name of a well-known Christian ministry, there are answers in Genesis. 
And that's why you and I need to study this book of Scripture. It's also a foundation for the gospel storyline. As Kenneth Matthews notes, Genesis stands second to none in its importance for proclaiming the whole counsel of God. It presents the literary and theological underpinning of the entire canonical scriptures. If we possessed a Bible without Genesis, we would have a house of cards without foundation or mortar. Just as we have no gospel without the cross. Somebody says, is the cross essential to the gospel? Yep, absolutely. Well, Matthew says, we would have no salvation story without the book of Genesis. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Imagine you've got a friend at work by the name of Dan, and he starts asking you questions about Christianity. So you think to yourself, hey, look, what better can I do but to send him home with my pocket New Testament? Okay, any of you carry pocket New Testaments? Keep them at work or in your car, something like that. That was a very big thing to do a while back. And you encourage him to read it. You think to yourself, hey, what better place to find the answer, what is Christianity, than the New Testament? So he goes home, and that night he opens up to Matthew 1.1, and he reads these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he reads this this New Testament starts with this genealogy and he's having trouble pronouncing the names and he gets through the genealogy and then he scratches his head and he puts the New Testament down and he goes to sleep. And then the next day at work, he says, why does the New Testament begin with this family tree of Jesus, this genealogy? What are these genealogies about? And then who is this dude named Abraham? You know, because he kind of seems like he's the Don, you know, the big shot. And Jesus descends from Abraham. And so you can only answer those questions, of course, if you yourself are familiar with the book of Genesis, which you happen to be. So you tell them about the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and you connect that promise to the proto-evangel, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. And so... Had you given him an entire Bible, you could send him home and just say, hey, read it. But you didn't. You gave him the New Testament. So you tell him, okay, well, read Romans 5, 12 through 21, where the Apostle Paul describes the entrance of sin into the world through Adam, and he contrasts Adam's act of disobedience uh, that brings death with Christ's act of obedience that brings life. And so the next day, he, he goes home, he reads it. The next day, he comes to you and he says, First of all, what are the respective deeds of these two individuals? And then secondly, why do the deeds of these two individuals impact the entire human race? And at this point, you start thinking, man, I should have given him the entire Bible so he could have read the book of Genesis for himself. Nevertheless, you do your best. You summarize the story of Adam and his fall. You talk about Christ as the second Adam and his saving work. And at the end of the conversation, he says this, I recognize I'm a sinner. I desire forgiveness of sins. However, to be honest, the, spro- the prospect of eternal life isn't very appealing to me at all. You say, why? And he says, well, heaven reminds me of a sterile hospital room where people just wear white gowns and play harps forever and ever. And I don't know about you, but that's the way I used to think about heaven growing up. 
And, uh, and then he looks around and he says, you know, in heaven I'm going to miss the beauty of this wonderful world that God has made. Well, at that point you smile and you assure him, hey, listen, that's not the biblical view of heaven. Eternal life is God removing all of the sin and the curse from this present world and restoring it to its original pristine state. In fact, God's even going to make it better. At that point, you grab his New Testament, you open it up to Revelation 21 and 22, and after you read the descriptions of the new heavens and new earth, he looks at you and he says, what's that river of the water of life all about? What about that tree of life? And you basically say, well, you know, heaven is going to be the Garden of Eden restored and perfected. And at that point, he looks down at the New Testament you gave him. And he looks back at you and he says, is there any chance I could get my hands on the whole Bible so that I could read the book of Genesis? Okay, do you get the point? And what I would say by way of application, friends, is we need to be whole Bible Christians. I'm not against giving people, you know, pocket New Testaments. But you can't really understand that pocket New Testament without the rest of the Bible. And especially without the book of Genesis. So we don't want to be New Testament Christians. Like, what's that pastor today, Andy Stanley, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? No, 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 no. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be... Uh, gospel of Jesus Christians or even just John 3.16 Christians because you don't know what for God so loved the world really means until you put it in its biblical context until you uh, ground it in the book of Genesis and so if we're going to explain the end of the story we need to know its beginning we need to know the book of Genesis What is then the argument of Genesis? Boy, I've got to move along here quick, okay? All right. So first of all, it begins the story of God's kingdom in a special presence, portraying God as Yahweh Elohim, a sovereign king who brings existence, uh, brings into existence and structures the world to function as his temple palace, where he manifests his special presence, where he administers his covenantal rule, through human beings who are his royal priests. The Garden of Eden serves a sacred space where humans commune with their maker and from which they carry out his kingdom-building enterprise to extend the borders of Eden to the ends of the earth. Uh, that is trying to summarize the theology of chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Okay? Now sadly, his viceroys end up following the serpent rebellion against their creator Lord. They're exiled from the temple palace, chapter 3. All hope is not lost, however. In the midst of the doom oracle on the serpent, God inserts a promise that functions as a prophetic foreshadowing of his plan to redeem the human race through a descent of Adam and Eve. And this first gospel becomes programmatic for the plot of the book of Genesis, as well as the plot of the rest of Scripture. See? So God, Yahweh Elohim says to the serpent, this is my translation, Because you've done this, you're cursed in distinction from all the beasts and the living creatures of the field. You shall travel on your belly. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And enmity I will place between you, that is the serpent, and between the woman, between your offspring, between her offspring. He will give you a crushing blow to your head. Forget about that translation of, you know, he shall bruise your head. We don't think of bruises as being lethal. This is lethal. But notice the other part. 
He, you, that is the serpent, will give him, seed of the woman, same verb, a crushing blow to his heel. Interesting. What does this suggest? Well, first of all, it suggests an ongoing animosity and conflict between the offsprings. Secondly, there's a narrowing of focus to the ultimate antagonist, the serpent himself, and the ultimate protagonist, he. Not just offspring collectively, but one offspring. He is the one who's going to give you a crushing blow on the head. And so we have here in the plot what's called a foreshadowing of the resolution to the conflict. It's a messianic foreshadowing. And this, by the way, is sort of carried throughout the book, this promise of an offspring from Adam through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, and then to Abraham, and then Isaac, Jacob, and then at the end of the book, through Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah until he he to whom it belongs comes, i.e. the Messiah. You have a final victory over the serpent, all right? He's on his belly. That's a metaphor of subjugation, of defeat. He's been defeated. There's this crushed head. Nevertheless, that final victory comes at great cost. You have a crushed heel. And I want to suggest to you that both wounds are portrayed in the text as lethal. The Messiah is going to die in the process of defeating the serpent, By the way, did that really happen? That's how it happened. Isn't that interesting? And then you have a glorious implication from this promise. You have a reversal of the curse and a restoration of Eden. So that's the aim. The basic argument is that the rest of Genesis traces the outworking (laughs) of this conflict uh, throughout the rest of Genesis the book, and had we time, I would show you how it develops this sort of plot through exile and restoration, which focuses on the land. You know, Adam's removed from the garden, all right? And uh, later on, Moses, or rather God, I'm sorry, starts with a, quote, new beginning with Noah. But then that kind of, we have falling action in the plot, where the conflict gets worse, you've got the Tower of Babel, and then God says to Abraham, go west, young man. And westward movement is to the land of Canaan, which is sort of a typical re-entry into the garden because Canaan flows with milk and honey, all right? By the way, you know, Lord of the Rings, the elves are always wanting to go west, go into the west, all right? I think maybe Tolkien got that from the book of Genesis. Um, Anyway, there's that up and down action of exile restoration, exile restoration throughout the Old Testament and even in the book of Genesis. You've got the war of the offsprings, the promised seed, and then finally you have this idea of overruling evil for good. And I'll just close with this. I had some more neat charts to show you that I don't get to show you, but basically it's this. How does Genesis close? That, that very just glorious statement of Joseph to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it 
for good. And that's the gospel, folks. That's the message of Genesis. That's what the, the proto-evangelical is all about. Okay? The serpent and Adam, they meant it for evil. They sinned against God. But God's going to take that, that, that evil and he's going to overrule it and turn it for good. He's going to bring about salvation for the human race. And when, the, when Peter's in the day of Pentecost, he says to the Jews, you and Pilate and Herod, you guys rejected the Messiah and you crucified him. But guess what? You didn't catch God off guard. That all happened according to his predetermined plan because God's in the business of overruling evil for gospel good. That's the message of the book of Genesis and of the Bible as a whole. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy in revealing to us this foundational book which uh, provides the seed plot for the rest of the story of Scripture. God, may we read it, study it, pray over it, and may it affect and impact our lives profoundly. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.